0: Welcome everybody to this online LSE uh, public event uh, hosted by the LSE's Global Health Initiative, the Institute of Global Affairs and the School of Public Policy. My name is Ernestina Coast, and I'll be the chair for this, um, this event which is focusing on the pharmaceutical challenges um, posed by the, the pandemic COVID-19. Uh, the panel uh, will be four people um, and we'll be looking at a range of issues related to the development and use of vaccines and treatments for COVID-19. I'm delighted to have our panel of four um, who will be presenting uh, in the following order. Uh, Panos Kanavos from the LSC, Ken Shadlin also from the LSE, Calypso Chalkidoo from the Centre for Global Development and Margaret Kyle from Paritech. Each of the presenters will talk for about 10 minutes and then we'll open up to uh, question and answers. Um, when you do post your questions, it would be great if you could let us know uh, your name and the institution uh, that, you're, that you're based in. Uh, so without further ado, I'm delighted to welcome our currently 191 uh, participants to this event, uh, delighted uh, but not surprised. To see such a strong level of interest uh, in this topic. Um, Without further ado I'll hand over to Dr Panos Kanavos um, who will kick off our panel. Thank you Panos.
1: Thank you Ernestina and uh, good morning, good afternoon, good good evening everyone. Uh, What I wanted to do in this brief uh, introduction is is, uh, share some thoughts on the key issues regarding pharmaceutical innovation and, uh, and access issues, and how these issues were shaping. were in fact um, the order of the day before the pandemic and how they are shaping, uh, shaping right now. Um, just as a reality check, I think it's worthwhile reminding ourselves on the current status of uh, treatments and vaccines in development for COVID-19. Uh, it looks as though we have about 223 treatments and about 141 vaccines. You can see here on the slide Um, developments on antibodies, RNA-based treatments, vaccines, about 141 um, and of which obviously uh, some are promising, others are less so, others are in preclinical stage, others have progressed to a clinical stage in development and so on and so forth. Overall we have roughly 460 plus active ingredients in testing of which uh, about 313 in preclinical development and um, 150 have entered in clinical study. I think it's important to also understand that um, about uh, 93% of pharmacological candidates have been approved for other indications. So in this particular case, we are basically talking about uh, drug repurposing. Now, when talking about uh, pharmaceutical innovation and access, I think it's important to link the issues around innovation, which obviously is the order of the day and uh, a key factor in shaping uh, market structure and um, uh, conduct and performance in pharmaceuticals, in, in, uh, but also the issues around uh, intellectual property and uh, and monopoly. Uh, and obviously, when we're when talking about intellectual property, whether this is uh, relating to patents or relating to uh, uh, market exclusivity or data exclusivity, obviously there is a direct link with, uh, with monopoly. But let's take this argument and look at how patents or other forms of uh, intellectual property uh, link to economic benefits. I think uh, it is fair to say that patents are needed to stimulate innovation. Um, and this is happening through profit streams for, uh, of current patent exploitation. I think it's important to understand that um, uh, the rights exclusivity uh, typically results in monopolization and um, what we call supranormal profits. And if the attitude is towards excessive profits, then obviously some regulatory action uh, can be justified, particularly in settings um, uh, in Europe, uh, in Japan, in uh, in Canada, but also elsewhere in the world. There are circumstances where we are facing institutional monopolies. In other words, the uh, competent authority or the regulator is actually awarding monopoly rights to a particular type of treatment. So uh, one could perceive, for example, orphan medicinal products and the um, orphan designation to directly or indirectly award such rights. Uh, There are also arguments about the um, uh, patent life and whether a short versus a long patent life Uh, encourages innovation or imitation. So a long patent life um, could, um, uh, for example, encourage imitation, whereas a short patent life may give an additional uh, incentive for uh, innovators to push the boundaries further and faster. Uh, I think it's important to reflect on that uh, that debate. Um, There are some other uh, issues of some concern, as concerns the um, uh, intellectual property, for example, issues around secondary patenting. For instance, there may be multiple patents for attributes of the same medicine, um, which accrue on the same molecule, the same basic molecule, for example, the pill size or the release mechanism. There may be extended release formulations. Uh, In the literature, we've seen quite a lot on evergreening, so generally, therefore, referring to strategies of obtaining multiple patents that cover different aspects of the same product. One example that I could... uh, uh, referred to as Idobudin, which was originally patented in 1964, but was shelved as an anti-cancer therapy, and uh, a use was identified in the 1980s, in mid-1980s, uh, as an HIV treatment, and a new patent was, uh, was awarded. So there are you know, tricky issues around patenting, and of course that debate is, uh, is, is extremely active in the, uh, not only in the, in the literature, but also in, uh, in daily practice. Now, when we're looking at uh, innovative treatments or new treatments that come to market, whether they are uh, breakthrough innovations or incremental innovations, uh, I think it is also important to reflect on what criteria decision makers need uh, in order to allow a new therapy to be reimbursed. And you can see a list of things here, um, uh, going from left to right and looking at the middle of the slide, you're, you're looking at safety and efficacy. So these are typical uh, regulatory criteria, but obviously we want effectiveness, in other words, measure of effect in real-life conditions. We want efficiency, so we want basically uh, look to look at the relationship between costs and effects, and we want affordability. So in other words, whether our healthcare systems can actually uh, pay for such treatments. And there are important trade-offs here, and the trade-off relates to the monopoly right on the other side uh, and the pursuit of profit in order to safeguard future innovation and encourage further innovation Um, and on the other side the needs of healthcare systems to have effective efficient and affordable uh, treatments so this is the uh, the debate and uh, when we're looking at this debate in slightly more detail uh, we're obviously discussing issues around value assessment. So we want for a new treatment whether this is a drug uh, or a codependent technology a drug device or it is in fact a vaccine uh, we want to look at the um, uh, overall value and the benefits that this treatment brings to uh, health and health gain. So uh, looking at the left-hand side of the slide, so we do have um, approaches to uh, value assessment around clinical and cost-effectiveness. So in this particular case, we're looking at incremental cost-effectiveness ratios, for example, as one of the uh, benchmarks. But there are alternative approaches um, uh, whereby, for instance, we're looking at a comparative clinical benefit uh, and, and 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 therefore looking at how a new technology fares and compares with uh, the existing one, so these are sort of strict criteria focusing on in the first case on a comparison between costs and effects um, in the second case, looking at a, comp- a comparison of uh, uh, clinical effects, the newer versus the older, but there's a whole host of uh, other dimensions of benefit for example innovativeness uh, the issues around end of life criteria that we have in the United Kingdom for example other health benefits um, uh, we're looking at the extent of uncertainty how certain or uncertain are the outcomes or the health gains that a new technology supposedly brings to uh, uh, brings to market uh, equality and diversity and um, a range of uh, other social value judgments we're putting all of these into Um, a discussion Uh, we're looking at the extent of uncertainty Uh, and if uh, uncertainties are quite significant and extensive then obviously we mitigate um, the risks through uh, the so-called risk sharing uh, agreements before arriving at a funding decision um, which results in uh, clinical um, or prescribed and or prescribing guidance so it's a fairly complex um, uh, uh, function here uh, by reimbursement committees, uh, but also health technology assessment agencies, if uh, obviously health technology assessment agencies operate uh, in certain settings, so value assessment therefore uh, and the criteria underpinning it uh, quite a, a complex uh, a, a complex case altogether now it 's important to reflect on how the debate is shaping up during the uh, the, the pandemic because in my mind uh, there are some pretty interesting and probably fundamental shifts uh, occurring Uh, and and in particular there seems to be an emphasis on equitable access to effective treatment and we're talking about the likely new vaccines that uh, uh, will emerge or the the likely pharmacological treatments that will treat um, difficult cases of COVID-19 for example on the one side and the differential capacity to pay for it uh, on the other. So for instance how does a country like Bolivia or Malaysia can benefit in the same way because it has been affected uh, in the same way as, for example, um, a country like Spain or Portugal. So, therefore, an emphasis on equitable access to effective treatment and a differential capacity to to pay for it. So, how does COVID-19 change the debate? Well, look at the range of options here. For example, leveraging TRIPS flexibilities. So, one could say, well, a new therapy, a new treatment or a new vaccine. um, With a new vaccine, we could... Um, allow it to be produced on a compulsory licensing basis so in other words we are revoking uh, the rights the intellectual property rights of the originator or if the originator acquiesces then obviously we're talking about a voluntary licensing process another way of looking at uh, of looking at things is to say well here is um, an intellectual property pool where we uh, Pull together um, patent rights, regulatory test data, and other information to be shared for developing drugs, vaccines, uh, and other uh, technologies. Uh, recently, we had the um, WHO endorsed resolution to create to create a voluntary pool for uh, for this uh, type of information. Another way of looking at this, at this is to say, well, here is a we need to think about delinking, and delinking basically the cost of the treatment from the, um, R&D. Um, so we're looking there at options to improve affordability by considering innovations as global public goods uh, in this particular case and therefore rewarding innovators through prizes. And of course, there are there's a whole range of procurement options which can work on the basis of uh, prizes or uh, price volume arrangements, for instance, uh, through pool procurement or through advanced purchase options. And I think it's probably one of the a few times in the last uh, 30 or 40 years, um, that we are very actively thinking around relaxing some of the IP uh, requirements in favour of providing access to, when it it becomes available, effective treatment uh, at an affordable cost uh, across the board. Um, So uh, this debate, of course, started in um, the early 2000s with uh, SARS. But I think as the current pandemic progresses, uh, we're seeing more and more argument about some of these tools, which by and large interconnect with uh, with, with each other uh, to um, uh, come to the fore. So, Ernestina, I'll pause here um, and uh, look forward to the discussion later on.
0: Great, thanks Panos. And for those attendees uh, who have recently joined, that was a presentation by Dr. Panos Kanavas uh, from the Department of Health Policy here at the LSE. Uh, next up, second in our panel of four is uh, Professor Ken Shadlin, Professor of Development Studies, uh, also here at the LSE in the Department of International Development. Thanks, Ken.
2: Thanks Ernestina, thanks everybody for uh, being here in your different time zones. Um, so Pano started off with some slides about sort of the state of R&D in this space. I won't repeat any of this. There's clearly a lot of action. There's no vaccines or there's no treatments that have yet been approved yet. A couple have received emergency authorization use, but the, there's clearly a lot of action in this space. The concern I think that many people have is also, as Pano said, it's about sort of the access to it. Whether the activities that all this burst of innovation has that's occurring, the activities that it's going to produce is how, who's going to get it and on what terms are going to get it. One way that I think about this is that when I sit around at the breakfast table with my wife and daughter and we talk about vaccines and treatments, we talk about it in a binary sense of will there be one and when there will be one. Um, but for billions of people on the planet, they're actually asking a different question. It's not will there be a vaccine, but if there is a vaccine, will we get it? And I say that not just sort of as a rhetorical flourish, the guy from international development, because I think that it both frames a lot of what I want to talk about today, but it's also, we've been there before. 20 years ago, when combination therapy came for HIV, it became a um, sort of, HIV became a treatable infection in the global north when it was still a death sentence in most of the global south. And then what happened was there was a massive expansion of treatment in the 2000s across all regions of the world. And so, what you see on the left is the, the green people are the people receiving treatment, and the, the right are just a, is a graph showing sort of the increased treatment by regions of the world. Don't get me wrong, I mean, inequalities in access to HIV AIDS treatments are not gone by any stretch of the imagination, but they're nothing like they were before. And You can ask sort of, how did this happen? And there's lots of, and the way that it happened is very relevant for the conversation we wanna have today. Lots of factors made this happen. There were lots of actors involved, governments got involved, lots of firms. I listed a bunch here. There's so many things that have been written on this. There was even a film that was made about all of these actors and activists and celebrities and philanthropists and so on and so forth. But I actually think most of that stuff is the bells and the whistles. What really made it happen is what's on the bottom half of this slide. There were drugs that were of high quality and they were inexpensive. And they came from India. And it was the existence or the arrival onto the market in the early 2000s of inexpensive, high quality antiretroviral drugs from India that essentially allowed that expansion of treatment that I showed on the previous slide to happen. Now, how did that happen? To understand how that happened, you sort of need to, I need to take you down a very quick walk down what I'm gonna call sort of patent, pharma patent nerd lane. And this is, I won't spend too much time on this, but this sort of explains how this happened and what the challenges are now. This is probably the key money slide in the whole presentation. So the agreement that required countries to grant patents on pharmaceuticals, countries like India, was called the TRIPS Agreement. Don't worry about that for now. It said you had to acknowledge inventions from 1995 onwards. Anything before that didn't matter. It's like the world started in 1995. But remember, and this is the the, the third bullet point here, remember that the date of an invention, what I'm going to call the priority date, usually precedes the date at which a product is launched by about a decade. So what this chart has here is basically for every year from 1995 to 2017, the share of the drugs that were launched in that year that are based on post-1995 inventions. And what you see is that most drugs that came onto the market until the early 2000s, really until the, mid, the first, like first half of the first decade of the century, were based on pre-1995 inventions. This isn't just about HIV AIDS drugs. This is about all drugs. So the share of the drugs that were launched in each year that are based on inventions that have dates that made them eligible for strong patents in India was zero until the early 2000s and low throughout most of the first decade. So what does that mean? It means that it was very easy. I mean, maybe it didn't look easy at the time, but looking at it back, it was very easy for Indian firms to enter the market. Those drugs weren't patented. Now we're not in that world anymore. Now we're changing, the world is different. And what I wanna do in the rest of the presentation here, and in the spirit of sort of the comparative perspective, which is what I titled this, I wanna focus on two ways in which the current situation is very different from that previous sort of uh, epidemic that was addressed in the early 2000s. The first challenge that I'm gonna talk about is relevant to all drugs. So it's really a temporal thing. It's what's different about the world now that was different out the world 15 or 20 years ago. And the second, one, the second challenge is a COVID specific challenge. So the first challenge is sort of obvious. If you look at that chart, it's the same chart that you had on the previous, on the previous slide, is that we've, we're moving. We've moved from a world in which we're talking about treatment in a world featuring drugs that do not have patents in India, and frankly, any other production-capable country, many other production-capable countries, to a world in which virtually all drugs have patents now in India and in virtually any other country that can produce them. So the question that we have to ask is what happens to access in a world of what I'm calling sort of quasi-universal patenting? And what I mean by that is that basically most drugs will have a strong patent in any country that can produce it. They may not have a strong patent in every country, but wherever it can be produced, it will have a strong patent. What does access, what, what does it look like then? So this this in many ways is very similar to one of the slides that that Panos has. I'm going to try to talk through a few things. So what generally happens in this situation is that firms that have the patent will market the drug in each country or they'll license production and the distribution rights to other firms. This happens all the time. Patent holders create and they manage networks of licensees and sub-licensees to manage the distribution around the globe. This can happen both direct in that the, firm, the, the patent holding firm can basically sort of write a license or agree a license with a with producer, or it can happen indirectly through something like a pool, like the patent pool or the, the medicine's patent pool, which is one that was created for HIV AIDS It now exists and for other areas, including COVID, um, or something like the patent pool that's being contemplated around the WHO. Both of these things, whether it's direct or whether it's indirect through a pool, are voluntary the firm does as it sees fit with its intellectual property and both of these tend to exclude a lot of countries so for example at the top of this slide i have a headline from farm from stat news from a lot about how gilead which has a drug that's sort of the closest to getting uh to getting approval it's sort of at the front of the queue but hopefully we'll get a lot better ones coming after that but once it's at the front of the queue licensed with 127 countries uh with about five or so firms to to sell the drug into 127 different countries. 127 is a big number, but there's lots of developing countries, basically all of Latin America, that's excluded from this. And these are middle-income countries that have a lot of poverty. We think of, you know, it's not just low-income countries that have poverty, but my colleague Andy Sumner's at King's College London across the road has shown that the distribution of poverty is heavily concentrated in middle-income countries. These are middle-income countries that are excluded to have are going through profound economic crises because of the same pandemic that we're all suffering from. And they have seriously constrained health budgets because of the pandemic as well. So this gets back to sort of the inequality and sort of the global development themes that I started with. Lots of attention is now going to compulsory licensing, which Panos mentioned as well. Compulsory licensing is essentially when the government lets somebody else uh, sort of produce and distribute the drug without the permission of the patent holder compulsory licenses for all of the attention that they're getting, to to be useful, they require either that the country granting it has local production capabilities, or that there are external suppliers. And the fact is that few countries have local production capabilities, not even many of the middle income countries that are excluded from this licensing scheme that I'm using as an example, have production capabilities. And if most of the local of, of the capable producers globally are part of the licensing scheme, then they can't sell to those markets either. And then that second option isn't there as well. Last week, I got an email from a pharmaceutical firm in a Latin American country. That's one of the ones that's excluded from this licensing scheme at the top. Not a tiny country, but a country. is local production possible? The answer is no. Not even if the country were to have a compulsory license would they be able to produce the drug locally. And again, this is not a tiny country, but actually a fairly industrialized middle-income country in the region. So what they're gonna do is they're gonna try to get the firm Gilead to include the country in the licenses. Well, that's not gonna happen. So they're gonna go negotiate directly with Gilead to maybe become a local licensee. All right, try it. Good luck with that. Um, The Ministry of Health is playing the same game. They're gonna basically negotiate directly with the firm and try and get a price. The key point that I wanna make is that in both of these negotiations, in a world in the absence of competition from external supply, in both these negotiations, the patent holder holds all of the power. So it's a fundamentally different set of challenges than the ones that we faced before. And my last slide, which is the second challenge and here, I'm gonna wrap up quickly and I'm gonna turn it over to uh, Calypso who's gonna go more into these topics, is that I think the second big challenge is It's that what we really care about right now, maybe even more than we care about price, what we really care about right now is we need a lot. Once we get something that's useful, we need a lot of it, and we need it quickly. We need massive scaling up of production of effective drugs, and we need it yesterday. Every day that we don't have it is another day that the economies are shut down. And here, I think that sort of the role of licensing could actually help speed things up rather than slow things down but the trade-off might be higher price and that's something i'd be happy to come back to in the q a and then the last thing i'll say before turning it over to calypso is that these challenges to scaling up and distribution are orders of magnitude bigger in the areas of vaccines and they are areas of treatment if there's five million people on the planet that get to get infected and say that every one of them needs to be treated and say it takes 10 doses we need 50 million doses of the drug, which is a lot to produce, but it can be produced. We have an effective vaccine. We might need 10 billion doses of it. So the, and we also need it really, really quick. So the challenges that we're facing in terms of the size and the, and the speed of the, of the ramping up of production is way, way bigger in vaccines than it is in treatment. And I'll end it there. Sorry for going over. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Ken. Uh, I'm delighted to invite our third uh, panelist, uh, Professor Calypso Chilkidu, who's the Director of Global Health Policy at the Centre for Global Development. Thanks, Calypso.
3: Um, Thank you. Thank you very much. So um, thanks again and panelists for uh, setting the scene quite nicely. So I will spend a few minutes talking specifically about a vaccine, um, one that's being developed or more than one that are being developed, as you saw um, and ways in which uh, perhaps we could think about access and pricing, given the uh, obstacles and the particularities that Panos and, uh, and Ken highlighted in relation to COVID. Um, so let me see. I'm trying to. Yeah, that's it. So um, let's start with what we're assuming um, in our discussions most of the time, uh, the conversations around uh, the development of a vaccine. So we, we think, we believe, I think as a global health community, uh, that we need a global solution to solve for the pandemic. And that means truly global. We can't uh, work with uh, only subgroups of countries. Uh, we can't um, rely solely on bilateral deals, which is what high income countries, the United States, the UK and others are entering in with uh, companies. Or indeed, in a sol- we can not rely on a solution that's uh, audible, that's basically solvable through development assistance. So we do need to engage the yes, we do need to engage China ideally uh, to get to a global solution for a global uh, problem. Secondly, the market is not predictable enough to work on its own at a fast enough pace and can hint it on the importance of speed. So we should be really willing to pay for a speed premium. Uh, And at the same time, of course, you can't rely on industry to do the right thing, produce something, make it available to people at the right price or free uh, or at cost. Um, everywhere that's needed. So that's not really a realistic scenario. Um, And then finally, uh, push funding alone cannot solve for a successful vaccine. We've got plenty of examples where grant money and portfolio selection shaping by countries alone and philanthropists have led to uh, late stage failures and the malaria vaccine, for instance, is one such example. Uh, the TB vaccine we haven't seen in detail yet, but again, it doesn't look as promising. GSK ended up licensing it out back to the Gates Foundation. And so in general, it's fair to say that the probability of success of an endeavor that's driven solely by governments uh, is uh, is quite low. Uh, so we do need a truly engaging solution that engages the private sector, but also regulates, manages uh, sets out the rules of engagement uh, with a view to to ensure access. So we've put together, by we I'm referring to the Centre for Global Development, working together with colleagues at PATH, uh, OHE, and other in, independent colleagues and academics, a proposal for uh, an advanced market commitment, if you like, but that's also based on the benefit. Uh, that the product brings about. And I want to emphasize a bit more this development, the middle development stage, which we we seem to be forgetting quite a bit in discussions about uh, vaccines right now. We talk a lot about early stage R&D and push funding grant money, we talk a lot and rightly so about manufacturing capacity and being able uh, at risk to scale up manufacturing in a way that's platform agnostic, given that there's different types of product being developed, developed we talk about uh, distribution rules and fairness. But we don't really talk about the profile of a product and how we're going to pull down the pipeline, a product that has the right profile. So, um, I'll, I'll just set out what uh, we mean by uh, benefits-based AMC, and I'm assuming that most people are aware of the advanced market commitment the way it was implemented with the pneumococcal vaccine a decade uh, ago or more. Uh, so first of all, back to the, world, the word global. It's a global problem and we need a global solution. So ideally, we want middle incomes to play here as well. It's not just about, for instance, Sub-Saharan Africa or South Asia. We want also high incomes to engage um, and we don't just want GAVI to solve for the developing country nations. Secondly, um, we can't rely on aid alone. Um, so right now there is potentially significant pool, significant market that private uh, investors see uh, uh, in, in the context of high income countries. But there's also significant uncertainty. Um, there is a possibility that two years from now there won't be an epidemic. To to deal with the the disease may well have become endemic, seasonal, or disappeared altogether. Already, we're finding it difficult here in the UK to recruit for um, a a vaccine uh, trial uh, out of Oxford. So, there are issues with the uh, stability of a future market two or three years into the future. Um, So, we really need to cooperate. Uh, And we need to work together also with the private sector. We need a solution that crowds in private investment. There's never going to be enough public money. I don't think governments are willing to commit to a single pool, uh, a a ton of funds uh, in an inflexible way, whereby uh, the funds effectively get committed, whether a vaccine develops or not, whether the right product is developed or not. That's very problematic. Uh, We do need the private sector to come in, but we need them to come in, Uh, in a way where uh, we signal to them as the public uh, um, sector, as academia, as the uh, people, the payers and and the taxpayers, ultimately, uh, what we expect from them and how uh, the rules of the game will be played once uh, the right product or products are out in the market. So, we do want to to risk share and we want to make sure that um, uh, the private sector Uh, uses their own expertise and experience in shaping their portfolios, in making decisions about the winners, if you like. We don't necessarily want to let governments alone, civil servants or technocrats advising governments, uh, to make these decisions on their own. Um, But uh, the only way industry will do this is if they believe that the risk will be compensated uh, via a reward that's worth their while if they are successful. So, of course, there's pressure as... Panos said on industry to deliver uh, but ultimately if they feel that this is too high risk uh, reputationally for instance to engage um, then it's very likely that they won't and the question is are we willing to, to take that risk and say well it's okay we'll just use public money and we'll own the product uh, when it comes out the other side. And back to performance, I think performance is the missing middle in a lot of the conversations so far. So Ken mentioned uh, pharmaceutical products so far, uh, the trials assessing the comparative clinical value of those products have been quite underwhelming. And I would uh, advise the uh, middle-income Latin American nation who's considering uh, going to Gilead and bidding for uh, access to their uh, licensing scheme To think again and have a look at the trial results before they commit to a large innovation premium. So the importance of assessing value for one's own setting in a certain point in time, including two years in the future, um, is really important. So it could have a very good uh, treatment, for instance, two years into the future, which makes uh, paying for a vaccine less attractive. Or it could be that the outbreak is uh, hopefully under control um, and we're looking at a completely different uh, counterfactual. So that's important. And it's also important to recognize that value is local. Um, and Panos mentioned local tiered pricing arrangements, pool uh, arrangements, differential pricing. But ultimately, there could be a vaccine that perhaps is not the top uh, candidate for the US or, or the EU. But uh, because perhaps it doesn't require cold chain arrangements, it's actually the ideal uh, product for countries uh, in sub-Saharan Africa. And so uh, they th- th- that's where value that's what drives value for those payers, for those end users. And, and we need to be able to acknowledge the context sensitivity of any value assessment in the context of a bro- broader market enterprise or AMC or whatever it is we're trying to design as a global community. And then finally, and I hinted, I, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, uh, we, governments are very averse to committing lots of funds up front without having a handle on exactly what it is they're going to pay at the other end. Uh, and I think it's really important, and what we're proposing is that commitments are guaranteed and underwritten, whether from a uh, multilateral development bank or government bonds in high income countries, or indeed GAVI, but they're underwritten subject to a product being developed that fits, to some extent, the target product profile that WHO put out there. So, um, ideally, that's going to be a lot more attractive, we think, to governments, as opposed to an arrangement where the 20, 60, 170 billion Uh, Dollars are asked from the high incomes mostly uh, to be put on the table uh, and and the idea is that something comes out and then we'll have to pay for it. That something needs to perform. We don't want to pay for things that are no longer of use to us or indeed uh, they don't deliver. So we we put together something that's uh, not a new idea. Early health technology assessment is used by companies all over the world and it's used increasingly by payers as well. Uh, I'm quoting here a piece by HITAP, the Thai HTA agency, which looked at uh, uh, how much the Thai government ought to be willing to pay for a successful HIV vaccine, which so is hypothetical, uh, given the potential value they'll be getting. And so we're proposing the similar exercises done using uh, disease transmission models and health economics models that exist already, uh, that, uh, which then would allow countries to assess for different scenarios in the future uh, how much they ought to be willing to pay uh, given their budgets and given competing demands on their budgets for a successful uh, product. So HTA is part of the mix. Underwriting I referred to. Some arrangements, some global governance arrangement, which is relatively loose. I don't think it's politically feasible to expect the United States right now to operate under WHO allocation rules, for instance. For better or worse, that's what the reality we live in is. But the US is an outlier, it's a big market, and ideally we would want them to, to engage Um, Similarly, for China, I think it's really important for all sorts of reasons. It it would be a win-win also for those countries as well, despite their size and economic clout. And then finally, manufacturing and distribution um, in in accordance to uh, countries' uh, own capabilities. And here it becomes really important to have manufacturing sites and manufacturing capabilities uh, uh, in developing countries and in investing in those capabilities and scaling them up uh, in order to ensure rapid access and, and fair distribution. So uh, we've written quite a bit about this and you can go to our website and, and have a look. We've blogged about it last, uh, uh, later last week um, uh, and I look forward to uh, the conversation um, uh, later on and the, the Q&A se- session and also please feel free to get in touch uh, via email. Uh, thank you very much, Chair.
1: Thanks,
0: Clipso. And just a reminder to all of our um, participants around the world in advance of our final uh, presenter, uh, you can start to post your questions in now through the various chat functions. Um, Please remember to put in uh, your name, your institution if you have one, or or which country the question is coming from. And could you make clear whether or not the question is for all of the panel to discuss or it's for a specific uh, panelist? Okay, without further ado, uh, welcome to our fo- fourth and final uh, presenter. That's Professor uh, Margaret Carl, who's Chair in Intellectual Property and Markets for Technology at Paris Tech. Uh, over to you, Margaret. Thank you.
4: Thank you very much for the invitation to participate in this panel. Um, the challenge of being the last speaker is that uh, I have to find something to say that hasn't already been said before by my three uh, very qualified colleagues um, on this panel. So I'm going to focus on something a little bit different. So, so Mm -hmm. far um, our discussion has really focused on uh, Mm -hmm. access issues um, for future treatments. Okay, so we're worried about getting a treatment, an effective treatment uh, to market and then thinking about how to distribute it as widely as possible. So can we learn something from what, what we've observed so far with products which are already on the market? So what we've seen with COVID-19, it was that there's this unexpected shock to demand for a lot of different medical goods. So for ventilators, for PPE, for reagents and other materials for testing, and for a few drugs, even though there's nothing um, yet approved as a, as a treatment for COVID-19, there's still lots of other drugs used in a hospital setting for those patients, whether it's uh, to sedate people, for putting, in a ventil- putting them on a ventilator, et cetera. So we have actually some, um, some products out there that we can learn from now. And what we've learned is that uh, in addition to throwing lots of money at uh, developing a vaccine, countries have also adapted their trade policies. So in some cases for the good. So in some cases, there's been a reduction in uh, in import barrier- barriers. So for example, removing tariffs on medicines. Uh, and I think that's something important to note here is that um, there are many developing countries that still impose tariffs on medicines, on medical devices, even on soap, and many of them have yet to remove those, tar- those tariffs in response to COVID-19. So there's, there's sort of low-hanging fruit for improving access out there, and that's one example. Unfortunately, uh, the other changes in trade policies that we've observed in response to this demand shock has been an increase in export barriers, and this one is much more problematic. So here, just to uh, give you an idea of what's been going on, this is from the, the website Global Trade Alert which goes through trade announcements uh, uh, by governments around the world and categorizes them as harmful or helpful, et cetera. So this is what uh, Global Trade Alert has has, uh, classified uh, based on export bans or export restrictions, et cetera, in the pharma uh, sector. And so you can see there's very little activity uh, over the last decade until, whoops, we get the pandemic And a lot of countries decide that they need to prioritize uh, domestic patients, uh, domestic supply, and so they put in export bans on various different pharmaceutical products. So some consequences in the short run, obviously, if you're an importer of those products affected by export bans in your your trading partners, you're hurt, very few countries are able to produce everything domestically. So you might be an exporter of some products, but you're likely to be an importer of another. And so while there's variation across countries in the extent uh, of their dependence on imported products, probably everyone is going to be touched as an importer to some extent, and will be tempted to respond by putting in export bans of their own. There's also heterogeneous effects across goods. uh, And in some cases, there's some unexpected ones. So sometimes an export ban that affects a key input can create shortages in products that are not subject to export controls. And so this can sort of have cascading effects. And I think something else that I'd just like to highlight here is because we talked about India earlier uh, in this panel as being basically a savior in the case of HIV by producing massive quantities of HIV medicines for, uh, for Africa in particular, India, unfortunately in this context has put in export bans on, for example, hydroxychloroquine. So that turns out maybe not to have been that costly if the drug turns out not to have been that effective, but um, it, the, the fact that the export ban was put in there suggests that we can 't necessarily look to India or any other country to be the savior in this in this situation. France and Germany in general, are champions of free and open trade and uh, and very pro Europe and building European unity, etc. Both of them put in export bans or in some cases requisitioned supply of products not even produced in, for example, France, just passing through France on the way to somewhere else. And Fran- the French government just tried to seize those products. So even countries where typically you know, we, ha- we, we expect um, behavior consistent with, um, well, with uh, appreciating uh, global trade, et cetera, we've seen, unfortunately, a reversion to some, some rather bad policies. So there's a lot of blame to go around here, and um, and I I hope that this is this is short lived and that uh, we we get past it soon. So despite the fact that we pay a lot of attention to IP, both as the incentive mechanism um, for inducing new treatments for uh, for COVID nineteen and for others, uh, as as Pano said at the beginning. IP in this case is unlikely to be the best solution in a pandemic. We need, we need things very quickly. We need a lot of money thrown at this very, very quickly. So there will be a lot of public uh, research support necessary. It's not obvious that extending patent protection by a couple of years or expanding patent p- protection to a few more countries is going to greatly change the incentives to develop a treatment here. It's just not the, the relevant margin right now. Uh, but I think it 's also important to to realize that IP is also not the only barrier to access here, uh, so there are we 've already seen shortages occurring in non patent protected products um, and in fact, I think export bans by trading partners could ultimately be much more harmful to access to treatments in developing countries than patents. Um, So that's not to say that they never matter. Uh, Most of my research focuses on patents, and I think they they are important. But uh, in this case, uh, I think if we focus excessively on patents, we're going to miss opportunities to improve access through other uh, other policy changes. So even if we uh, completely eliminated patents in the the context of COVID-19 treatments, we would not have universal access without making some other adjustments. So... I'd just like to, to wrap up here by pointing out that trade policy uh, now could actually inhibit access to new treatments and vaccines in the future. So. I think everyone is uncomfortable with the idea that we should just let the market play out. So the market will ration supply of a new treatment or a vaccine through price. And, you know, I think we can we all seem to be in agreement that that's not the ideal situation, that the ability to pay is very low in uh, in large parts of the world. And in fact, access to vaccines in those countries will still help. Uh, consumers and patients in relatively rich countries because it is a pandemic, it's global. So uh, there's a risk that if we don't get it under control pretty much everywhere, it will eventually come back and and hurt even rich countries or hurt them more. However, I think protectionism as the alternative to the market rationing, the protectionist policies could ultimately be even worse. Uh, And so the export bans that we've seen or requisitioning supply Or what's already uh, started to be discussed is requiring priority access for domestic use. So threats that um, if a vaccine is developed by a country, uh, by a firm located in a specific country, it's the patients in that country that get uh, first access to the drugs for these kinds of uh, uh, proposals or threats or saber rattling, whatever it is, uh, potentially could be very problematic. So that, those kinds of policies may prevent supply from reaching the populations that most need the treatments. And it's also likely to induce similar kinds of uh, behavior in other, in other countries. So if you see the US behaving one way, uh, your response might be to institute similar kinds of policies. And all of those moves towards protectionism undermine exactly the kind of global cooperation that Calypso was talking about as necessary for whether it's an AMC or even enrolling enough patients in vaccine trials as the um, number of infections changes from country to country, we're going to need help from all countries. We can't can't just do it in a single country anymore. Uh, Unfortunately, I think um, the kinds of moves towards protectionism are are inhibiting our ability to uh, achieve that kind of global cooperation. And that is what we need for the development of new treatments as well as ensuring access to them. So let me end there, and hopefully, I've left enough time for good Q and A.
0: Thank you, Margaret. That was great. So I can see now um, a whole stream of questions coming in from our two hundred and twenty plus. participants. Uh, please do keep uh, the questions coming. The way this is going to work is that I will read out the question and I will flag if it's for a specific panel member or uh, for the whole panel. So the first question is coming in uh, from Veronica Works from Boston University School of Public Health. Uh, it's a question for Ken. Uh, Ken, she'd like you to comment on the situation of Bangladesh in particular. Do you think Bangladesh can become, in her words, uh, the India of the 2000s, uh, producing generic medicines to treat COVID-19?
2: Well, that's a great question. I think it's the right question to ask because it's potentially about recreating the situation that we saw 15 or 20 years ago that allowed us to overcome or to increase expansion of treatment for HIV AIDS. So it's a country that because of the way the WTO rules are set up is still allowed to not have pharmaceutical patents and does it therefore sort of fill the gap left behind that India does. I don't know enough about Veronica, I don't know enough about the Bangladeshi pharmaceutical sector to give you a really good answer to that but I could say that I'm skeptical. And the reason why I'm skeptical is uh, for two reasons. One is scale. And there are just a lot of really big Indian firms that have multiple production sites that can produce a lot of drugs. And they've been doing it for a long time and they have you know, a long now period of experience of distributing gl- drugs across the world. And I'm just, it's questionable to me about the, ex- the extent to which Bangladeshi firms could do this. There've been stories about a couple of Bangladeshi firms that are starting to say they're gonna produce one of these drugs. Uh, and the, the number of doses that they're talking about producing are minuscule. Um, so, um. I'm just going
0: to say that I'm skeptical, but I think it's a really important question to ask. Thanks, Ken. The next question is for all of the panel. Um, it comes in from Elise Racine at the Hertie School. Um, and her question is that there's been more information emerging around how COVID-19 is disrupting routine immunization campaigns in low and middle income countries. And um, She notes that the WHO's DG recently stated these disruptions might unwind decades of progress against vaccine preventable diseases. And she asks, how can this damage be minimized? And are such actions realistic given the COVID-19 health emergency? Um, I'm going to go to Panos first
1: i can only i can only hypothesize that it 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 might um, things might things might things might uh, might change but um, it, it's difficult to um, to respond we're facing a unprecedented circumstances and we've seen in our own healthcare systems that we're not talking about vaccination programs we're talking about um, healthcare delivery in some cases being uh, Put on hold for uh, critical care or patients or cancer patients and so on. So I think it's uh, we're experiencing unprecedented circumstances. But in principle, vaccination programs should not really um, be, be be put on hold. Um, uh, I think I think we are ahead of the um, um, of, of the curve here. The big question will will arise, obviously, if and when. A new treatment, a satisfactory treatment, comes about or becomes available. In which case, some of the financial um, and access requirements will have to be um, will have to be managed appropriately. Uh, and it is there that we need the kind of cooperation that Ken, Calypso, and uh, and Margaret have been talking about. And in fact, it has to be a kind of global, global cooperation in order to basically avoid. Uh, those shortcomings and, um, and 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 the risk of someone benefit versus some, someone else. So I think this is the um, the kind of situation that we what we are facing now, uh, and this is the kind of situation that unavoidably uh, will emerge if and when a satisfactory vaccine or other treatment um, becomes available.
0: Thanks, Panos. Calypso, would you like to respond to this this question?
1: Yes.
3: Well, I I'm not sure I have much more to add to what Panos just said. Uh, As he said, the impact, uh, for instance, in this country on, um, say, cancer services, uh, we've only just started to um, understand how we could quantify, let alone quantify and and express it in terms of of years of lives lost, for instance. Um, So there's significant um, uh, indirect or rather non-COVID, uh, but health effects of uh, both uh, COVID itself, of the uh, perceptions of people, behavioral changes because of it, and and then of the policy response, which a lot of the time, especially in uh, lower-income countries, seems to have been quite heavy-handed um, and, and very much uh, COVID-focused, um, assuming that everything else will carry on, which, of course, is not possible. So WHO guidance... Um, is suggesting that countries just do everything. So they do everything they should have been doing, uh, which we know they weren't doing, uh, plus do a lot more in relation to COVID. Well, that's really problematic. There are always trade-offs. And if it's politically uh, insensitive to point those out, it doesn't mean they don't happen and people are losing out. Um, so I think, I think it's happening. I think because, again, unfortunately, uh, data collection systems are very weak, in most uh, developing nations, very unreliable, because the global health community, again, courtesy of, uh, of donors, have been investing heavily in modelling estimates, as opposed to uh, conventional prospective cohorts to establish prevalence, mortality, etc. We've been modelling mortality, we've been modelling impact. So now we have lots of models, and it becomes a bit uh, um, circular. We're modelling the R, and then we're fitting it back into the model and modelling it again, and we don't really know, for instance, how many people are dying from COVID uh, by age group in most developing countries? We don't. We, we don't know that. Probably never find out, um, and let alone uh, people dying from cancer or, or other causes. Uh, so, vital statistics systems again. We say it every time. We sort of come out and and and, and highlight how important this is, and then we move on to modeling uh, all these uh, issues again um, until the next time. So. It's hard, unfortunately. What doesn't get measured doesn't get much attention, and I think that's where we are right now. We don't really, we don't really know. Excess debts are not an easy thing to to measure uh, in in most countries, let alone countries with weak um, um, data collection systems.
0: Great, thanks, Calypso. I'm going to move on to another question. I can see we've got so many questions in coming in um, from around the globe. Uh, the next question is from Jenny McDougall, uh, who's at King's College in London. Um, and her question, it's for the whole panel. I wanted to ask about the prize mechanism, as she calls it, where R&D could be rewarded in a way that is decoupled from subsequent drug prices or sales, with the treatments effectively becoming global public goods. How does the panel think this would work in practice? And do you see it as a viable option in the context of COVID-19? Or if not, what are the barriers? Do you want to raise your hand? Any member of the panel who'd like to take this first? Panos, over to you.
1: Thanks, Jenny and uh, Ernestina. It's a really tricky this one. Um, I just want to take us back to 2016. Um, the the argument about uh, decoupling and global public goods, um, if the if innovations being global public goods, is uh, is an old one. It's not a new one. And in 2016, it was included as, a, as, a, as an option in the report by the UN High-Level Panel on Access to Medicines. It's a, really tricky, it's a really tricky question, this one, effectively because we don't have a manifested way of how decoupling would work in practice, how we would sort out the, uh, the reward to the innovator. But I would assume, and looking at um, some uh, seeds from the literature, I, I, I would assume we would be in a position to identify costs of, uh, of R&D and add a premium, net cost of R&D and add a premium um, to the a satisfactory premium to the innovator. This could work. Obviously, the devil will be, uh, will be in the detail because the issue is quite complex. Suffice to say that if we're looking at... Um, um, innovation per se, and uh, R&D expenditure, about 60% is private, and there is a 40% contribution from either the um, public sector, whether it is uh, NIH in the US or M- uh, MC, you know, the, uh, uh, the funding agencies in Europe or in the UK or whatever, and obviously the uh, the voluntary sector. Uh, So, and we have to consider in that context discovery expenses, um, we have to consider development, we have to consider licensing and royalties. But in the context of COVID-19, and if we're talking about a vaccine, then obviously we're looking at manufacturing costs, and it is probably some of the manufacturing costs, or elements of manufacturing costs that are quite significant in uh, in that context. And beyond thinking about the global public good uh, and rewarding the innovator for the R&D expense, we also have to think about who is footing, who is paying the bill for the significant manufacturing costs that a new vaccine, for example, would uh, uh, would take and would require. Um, so I'm, I'm sorry there, is, there isn't a sort of a straightforward answer, but it's a, it's a tricky one, and obviously the details need to be uh, to, uh, to be worked out.
0: Thanks, Panos. I can't see if any of the other panel members, I don't think anyone else is raising their hand to join us specifically on this, so let me ask a follow-up question uh, I think linked question, but this is one that's come in specifically uh, for Ken. Um, And this is from Duncan Matthews at Queen Mary University. And Duncan asks, there has been a lot of discussion today about scaling at manufacturing, but where will the active pharmaceutical ingredients come from? And how can countries ensure that they are not overly reliant on importing APIs?
2: Well, yeah, that's a good question, Duncan. I mean, when I talk about production capability and scaling up production capability, I'm actually talking about APIs. I'm not talking about the ability of, con- of countries to have firms that can formulate the final products, which is a fairly easy thing that most countries have some producers that can do. I'm talking about actually the production of the APIs. So for me, local production capabilities and API production are almost synonymous. And the problem is that few countries have it. Um, and fewer countries have it now than did say 15 years ago because even India has less API production capability than they used to. One thing that I will say about this is that um, there are some countries that saw this problem coming around the curb a while ago. And so, uh, for example, in Brazil, they've been trying to develop API production capabilities for about 10 years now, precisely because they saw around the curve that there was going to be a time in which they couldn't rely on India supply anymore. So I think that your question is a good question about, yeah, the way you become, the way you avoid over-reliance on foreign APIs is to be able to produce them yourselves, but you you don't get that capability just by snapping your fingers, it's a hard, it's a hard struggle.
0: Thanks, Ken. Um, The next question. Um, has come in from, for the whole panel, uh, from Rui Marquez Pinto, uh, political advisor at Rütlingen Municipality in, in Germany, and they describe their question as a simple one, but I will leave that to the panel to decide. What are the problems of individual countries looking for a vaccine against COVID-19, since we're in a context of the free market and competition? calypso would you like to challenge this first not challenge sorry answer this first sorry
3: uh what are the problems of the countries
0: um to the issues what are the issues for individual countries in a context of free market and competition
3: well i mean uh, (laughs) it's a number of things so so we've touched upon so far so for example um Let's say, let's say Operation Warp Speed that President Trump launched, a lot of money, uh, many possible winners. Now, there's, there's lots of possibilities, lots of scenarios. So it could be, for example, that the, the companies the U.S. is, is betting on, uh, none of them comes up with the, the top product. Some come through, but they're suboptimal. And say China, uh, the Chinese military, or somebody else gets the, the product. That's clearly problematic. Okay, So that's one of the reasons why you ought to be hedging your bets uh because it's just not possible to bet on absolutely everybody and and pull them through all the way all 140 products even if you are the us you can't take them all and and and, and manufacture them right right at the end block capacity for manufacturing et cetera. so that's not going to happen so you're betting so you might lose so that's one thing even if uh, uh president trump is betting on a winner or two um there's issues with api with um you know, perhaps not glass vials anymore because they made a deal with BFS, but ultimately adjuvants. Uh, this is a global supply chain. So if you're going to want to have like 300, 600 million doses for your population in the U.S., it's not clear to me, certainly not a certainty, that you'll be able to produce all the adjuvants, all the, the, the raw materials, if you like, um, uh, in, in the U.S. So at some point you might need Brazil to help. Or, or, or China to export something to you. Uh, and that will be, again, very problematic when you're playing that game of uh, bilateralism and, and, or unilateralism, even one country and a company or a group of companies. Um, and then there's the issue, again, uh, of um, um, pulling your, your purchasing power with others also to, to, to draw down the pipeline, something that's worth paying for. So you're, saying, you're signaling to them, you're saying, well, I'm going to pay for this, but I want the minimum WHO TPP to be met, which is where our proposal comes in. So we're saying it's not just about getting any product uh, out the door. You want a product that works, right? Uh, and then there's, of course, issues of manufacturing capabilities. And again, the US probably able to manufacture, maybe, I don't know, it depends on the platform, but ultimately they'll have for that speed premium, uh, uh, and irrespective of the performance of the product, they'll have to invest at risk and ex ante block out manufacturing capacity across different types of platform and hope that some of the winners are coming through are uh, the platforms they've already uh, reserved capacity for a fit for those platforms and they're going to be uh, mass produced. So, and then of course, the most important thing, uh, the virus cannot sort of uh, be controlled by border controls and however good the immigration officers are in the United States uh, people can still come in and ultimately trade and people movement is the basis of a capitalist economy such as the U.S. Is. So how long will they remain locked in unless uh, they share? So it's a global problem and we need a global solution. It's, uh, there's no other way. There's no way around it.
0: Thanks, Calypso. I'm going to jump on to another question. So sticking with that, that global Aspect. This is a question that's come in for Ken uh, from Kofi Naza, uh, who is an LSC uh, alum, um, who makes the point. Local manufacturing has existed in sub Saharan Africa now for quite some time, but the technological capabilities of many of these firms remain very low. So Kofi is asking a broader question about what do you think has hindered technology transfer over the years or in his words, stunted technological innovation, and what can be done to solve this problem, specifically in the context of COVID nineteen.
2: Um, that's a challenging question, and I'm not sure how good of an answer I'm going to be able to give to that. Uh, it's sort of it's very similar to the previous question that I got about the difficulty of local production capabilities. But I'm going to I'm going to try to address it from a different angle, and I'm going to say that part of the ability of producing the APIs depends on the the characteristics of the api itself some are actually fairly easy to produce and then it's just a question of whether the country has a certain amount of technological capabilities to reverse engineer it some are very difficult to produce both because the synthesis in itself is very complicated and because the amount of raw materials that you need and supply chains are very complicated in which case it's not really a there's a lot of know-how there that you may not be able to develop on your own and so I guess that I think that for some traditional drugs, it's a question of investing in the technological capabilities over a sustained period of time to be able to reverse engineer simple, small molecule chemical drugs. And for other drugs, you're gonna have to work with the innovator itself because they're the ones who have the know-how for how to produce the drug and how to manage the supply chain. And so I'm not sure that really addresses the question as directly as the questioner wants, but I think that, and I don't have a global answer for why technological development became stunted in that sector, in that region of the world. But uh, I think that it's, what I'm trying to say here, and this sort of links to what I was trying to get to in the very last slide of my presentation, is that for some drugs and vaccines, the challenges are greater than our traditional, traditionally way we think about reverse engineering of drugs.
0: Sorry. Uh, thanks, Ken. Um, I'm going to next move to a very broad, let's call it the the crystal ball question uh, for the whole panel. And this is a question uh, that's come in from Keith at King's College. And he asks, assuming the pandemic is over, what would you recommend countries or international organizations do differently in terms of pharmaceutical regulations to prepare for the next pandemic? Um, I can see the whole panel uh, smiling wryly at that question. Um, if I may, uh, let me ask Margaret to respond to this first. Thank you.
4: So I think the most obvious uh, lesson from, from this is probably to manage stockpiles of necessary goods so that, that can be very simple things like PPEs, um, maybe it's ventilators, et cetera. But certainly having, having some kind of strategic stockpile, that seems the, the most obvious lesson to, to learn here. Um, I think the other lesson is that it's not so much importing that is a problem. The problem is being too dependent on a single source of any key input. So whether that's domestic or whether it's foreign, um, that is problematic. So I think what we probably will see is a, an effort both at the firm level and at the national level to diversify supply sources. And it's not realistic for every country to be able to produce at the local level, uh, domestically produce APIs across the board. It, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, most countries won't have that capability, and it wouldn't make sense. They would be if they had it. It would be at higher cost than what we could achieve by engaging in global trade. There is a problem with being overly dependent on a single country or two countries for the source of everything. So, greater diversification, I think, is the other key, key lesson here. And I guess the um, the third lesson I hope that we that we take away from this is that again the the turning inward and uh, immediately putting up protectionist barriers is undermining global cooperation and for something like a global pandemic this is really where we need global cooperation so maybe put in more institutional um, well strengthen the the global institutions that we have rebuild trust in them because clearly that's an issue And hope that next time we'll be better prepared to address it together rather than, you know, everyone reverting to, okay, I'm going to put in an export ban, you're going to put in an export ban, and then we have to work on undoing this through bilateral negotiations rather than just getting rid of the barriers to begin with.
0: Thanks, Margaret. Uh, your answer really uh, makes me mindful of the, the news story about how Addis Ababa is emerging as a really important hub in the south to south transfer of uh, COVID-19 uh, products to prevent seizure uh, of products from some countries. Um, who else on the panel would like to respond next to this crystal ball question about about what next? Um, I can see no hands raising, so I will nominate. Oh, Panos, well done. Over to Panos. Thank you.
1: Well, thanks, Ernestina, and I think it's a a really good question um, because it forced us to think about how the future might plan out um, in in, in this particular area, where which is very, uh, which is guided by IP rights, is guided by intense regulation, it's guided by uh, fragmentation, and so on. So, if we are in a position to do away with elements of fragmentation, then obviously. Uh, I think we would we, we would achieve a lot if we were in uh, in a position to cooperate better at global level then we would certainly achieve a lot if and i know it's a little bit um, uh, problematic to raise this if some of the international organizations and agencies can take a a greater a bigger role in this particular context and uh, um, let's say move away a little bit from from their global uh, from their convening power and and perhaps um, uh, get us a little bit more to collaborate, I think that would um, uh, that would go some way into addressing a future pandemic in a better way um, we 're looking at regulation as well by and large, whether you are in the United States or in Europe or in Japan in Canada in Australia in Brazil in Egypt, and so on, um, we regulate medicines in a similar way so we're looking at safety. We're looking at efficacy. We're looking uh, at, at quality. So strengthening that process obviously is a requirement for many countries. Um, You're going to call them countries in the south. That's absolutely fine. But certainly, uh, there needs to be uh, an approach there. But uh, there's no reason why we shouldn't be um, uh, we shouldn't be uh, harmonising or even standardising uh, standards at global level and uh, and having a sort of a, a more uh, a more rapid response. Uh, equally, from a, from an IP perspective, perhaps I think I think it'd be, it might be worthwhile uh, to to come together as a global community and um, and address the challenges of um, let's say profitability uh, on one side, which is obviously uh, coming through monopolisation and so on and so forth, versus the need to ensure that we have uh, equitable uh, equitable access. Again, easier said than done. But I think uh, some of the shortcomings and some of the debate points that we've been um, hovering around uh, clearly need addressing. And I think uh, going forward, whether it is global regulatory standards or, let's say, a renegotiated uh, TRIPS flexibilities or some other arrangement uh, to address explicitly um, the concerns around the pandemic could become the, I wouldn't call it the bedrock, but uh, probably the... um, uh could give us an opportunity let's say to shape things differently uh, for the future
0: thanks panos ken would you like to respond to this question
2: yeah sure it's a great question and um i mean i i agree completely with the three points that uh, that margaret put out at the beginning of this question and it, particularly the second point about diversifying your source of imports and if I came across as saying that all countries should become self-sufficient in all API production, then I didn't mean to say that because that's obviously would be both impossible and wasteful. But I will say, I just wanna make two quick comments here. One is that countries, because of their distinct disease profiles and distinct characteristics of their, health, their needs in their healthcare systems, they can identify the particular areas of vulnerability and invest in, those er- in developing capabilities in those areas. And that's a lot different from saying every country becomes self-sufficient across the whole spectrum. And the, the other point that I want to make, which I think, is, I think is hopefully maybe the sort of the abiding memories of this, and it's, I know it's too early to talk about the memories of the pand- pandemic when we're still stuck really in the beginning stages of it, because we don't even have any drugs or treatments yet, or vaccines yet, but and that is that it's really driving home the importance of the interface between sort of health policy and economic development and industrial policy. And I don't mean that just in the way that we see every day in the fact that, you know, our economies are stalled because we're dealing with a health crisis. And so these things are related, but also in the sense that a lot of the ways that countries can respond to this crisis and the challenges depend on having a vibrant industrial sector. So these two things, I think, are much more related in ways that people have appreciated in the last, in recent years. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Kent. Calypso, would you like to make a final point on this? I know before you you need to leave this event uh,
3: thanks no i think we've, um, we've we've i think this particular question has been covered i think and 'm I'm, I'm sure there'll be a lot of conversation about global governance as well more generally um, once this is sort of over in any way it could be deemed to be over um uh, and I think it's important to think about the governance arrangements that, um, that follow this crisis and how what the implications may 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 be on um, on different countries. So we've already seen um, uh, in, in draft proposals in, uh, in the U.S. for establishing a president's uh, response to outbreaks office uh, under the State Department, will, which will take uh, up some of the USAID budget. Um, And some of the COVID response budget globally as well. There have been calls by Australia and others to uh, review the WHO's um, behaviour vis-à-vis China. Um, There, here in the UK, the um, Foreign Committee uh, have called about a month ago for a a G20 function uh, that's responsible for public health. uh, an outbreak surveillance. Uh, in- internally, we're seeing a new office being set up in the UK to oversee response, headed up by uh, somebody who is likely to become the next head of uh, MI6, uh, with Public Health England perhaps not playing such a central role going forward, more of a, um, a securitized response approach, if you like. So, who knows what's going to happen, but uh, things will change dramatically, I think. Um, and I hope that we're able, through this platform and others, to reflect on uh, possible scenarios and perhaps perverse implications of governance arrangements uh, and decisions taken in the aftermath uh, that may affect us all and uh, for, for, for many decades to come. Now, thank you for, for the opportunity.
0: Thanks, Calypso, and thanks so much for your input on today's, today's panel. Moving on to uh, another question, Uh, this question has come in from Rachel Arendelle um, from the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Authority um, and someone who formerly worked in DFID on global health policy. Her question, I'm interested in any view from the panel about the optimal role of regulators in countries such as the UK to ensure the development and use of a safe and effective vaccine. And how can high-income countries support low- and middle-income countries in any regulation? Who'd like to go first in responding to this? Margaret, Ken or, or Panos? I want to show by raising a hand, otherwise I'll just unmute somebody. I'm going to unmute Ken. I can't unmute Ken. Ken, could you unmute yourself, please?
2: Um. Uh, I am unmuted, actually. I, in, in some ways, I have to say I'm probably the least, the least equipped of the three people to be addressing this question because I don't do much work on regulatory agencies in the UK or in Europe. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disqualify myself from answering this.
0: That's fine. Panos' hand has gone up. Panos, <laughs> over to you, and then Margaret, if you'd like to follow on from, from uh, Panos, to, just to, raise to, your hand.
1: Yeah, tricky, tricky one, this one, but... Um, um i th- i think <clears throat> agencies such as the ema obviously the mhra here in the uk and the, the fda not to discount health canada or the um or tga in australia and japan for that matter do have do actually take the lead in um i wouldn't call it regulatory science but in the application of the standards that we uh, that that we have it is quite clear and i think um probably a shortcoming um, of our global system that developing countries or lower and middle income countries, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, do have significant needs to improve uh, uh, their regulatory standards. I was recently, um, recently means about six to seven months ago, um, privy to discuss developments uh, in um, uh, in Central Africa. It's It's an effort by the regulatory agencies of uh, four or five countries. It's called Zazibuna. Uh, I don't know if, 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 the, if the acronym rings any bells with anyone on the, uh, uh, in our virtual um, world here. But um, it is basically an effort by several countries to coordinate their actions in order to improve standards, in order to share experiences, and in order to see what can be done um, better, faster, and more optimally also, sharing uh, sharing responsibilities, and in that context, uh, agencies, uh, whether they are in Europe or in North America or um, uh, or Asia, can help quite a lot in terms of uh, uh, sharing standards, in terms of showing uh, how to do things effectively. Uh, the regulatory needs may change, and they may change significantly. We have significant challenges in terms of uh, in terms of new uh, treatments, but also in the traditional treatments. Um, that do not necessarily require all that armamentarium that we have and we are implementing across uh, ac- across the board um so and, and I recall that several years ago w h o did have a project um on uh, requirements for small regulatory agencies in order to improve their performance in order to improve their standards in order to upgrade um, the the, uh, the standards they they implement and so on and so forth but i don 't know what what has been happening in you know in the in the in the interim, so I suspect there may be quite a lot um, in terms of our, in terms of reducing the fragmentation and bringing some of the needs of these regulatory authorities up to certain standards and obviously the standards that we subscribe to. Uh, in this part of the world, if that um, can be perceived as an answer. But I see quite a lot of uh, opportunity there. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Panos. Margaret, is this a question you'd like to respond to? Ah. I'm aware that we've got just over five minutes left on this panel and a ton of great questions still waiting to be asked and answered.
4: So then I'll be extremely brief. Um, First, I don't think that the FDA has necessarily uh, provided a shining example for the rest of the world in the last few months. Um, so maybe there's some there are some things to learn, but um, maybe also learn from mistakes that, uh, that we've seen in high-income countries as well. Um, I guess the other point that I'd like to make is, I think too much of the burden of ensuring uh, quality has fallen on the FDA and the EMA and, you know, basically the big regulators. And they simply don't have enough resources to be reviewing, to to, uh, examine all of the manufacturers in a global supply chain, right? So. Uh, I think that there's a risk that even in high income countries we're, that uh, quality is an issue because inspections are less frequent or not as thorough or not a surprise or something like that so this is This is not just a high income to low income country uh, transfer of knowledge. this is again a global issue that we should we should all be discussing and worried about.
0: Thanks, Margaret. I'm going to follow that swiftly on with another question uh, from Shane McMahon, uh, who is a resilience consultant at Horizon Scan, um, to the whole panel. Do you think that the pharmaceutical organ companies see COVID-19 as a long-term business opportunity rather than a crisis? Ken?
2: Um. I mean, all of the above. It's both, and it doesn't have to be one or the other. It's—I think—it's clearly, it's clearly both. They wouldn't be—they wouldn't be throwing tons and tons and tons of money and resources into it if they didn't think there was a business opportunity. But they also wouldn't be throwing tons and tons of money into it so fast, and therefore abandoning other lines of research that get suppressed if they didn't also see it as a crisis. So I, I see it as both, and don't necessarily see those two as sort of tragically in conflict either in this space.
0: I see lots of nods and smiles from the other two. Um panellists. So unless I see a raised hand, I'm going to assume um, that there isn't a different answer to the one that Ken um, has just given. And I want to maximise the number of questions that we are asking. Uh, A question um, came in from uh, Eric Bergloff here at the LSC, um, asking the panel to reflect on testing, uh, which he notes hasn't been mentioned um, at all in the the presentations or the discussion. Panos, would you like to... Or Ken or Margaret, I'm so in the interest of speed and yeah, time. Testing
1: say- t- testing means uh, obviously following up and um, and maximising. I think I think it's 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 essential. I think it's essential. Um, I think as we move uh, from a situation of lockdown to a situation where we are gradually opening up, and uh, given the severity of the situation, testing is uh, is, is is absolutely essential. Um, on the understanding that obviously we use the um, the proceedings of that to. To make decisions about um, the dispersion of the disease, following up, and b- basically the whole armamentarium that we have in terms of tracing, identifying new cases, and so on and so forth. Um, I don't just just reflecting on um, on uh, a likely second peak. I don't think that the global uh, economy can afford a second, uh, a sort of a yes, we can afford a second peak, obviously, but we cannot afford a situation where we have continuous lockdowns. Uh, uh, in in large parts of our economies and societies anymore, I, I think it's becoming, uh, it is going to cost us dearly, and uh, unless we unless we keep testing and following the disease, it's um, uh, we're living far far too much to chance.
0: Thanks, Panos. Um, I'm going to move to another question. This question has come in from from Kate Marr at the the LSE, who says, who asks rather, is it wise to press less developed countries with currently very low death rates from COVID-19, but they have many other more pressing health uh, issues as well? Um, to why should costly health priorities of more developed countries be financed by less developed countries with other competing priorities of their own. Margaret, Ken or Panos, would anybody like to respond to this question?
2: Uh, Yeah I mean I'm not sure that I see anybody pressing anybody to prioritize this. I think countries will set their own health priorities and if they want to use their resources to treat other conditions rather than treat COVID. I think that's going to be an autonomous choice. I haven't seen countries being pressed to do this. I think that one area where you might make the case that even where that this might seem like a pressing thing it is precisely that it's global and that basically people travel. And that if the if the COVID is not captured or controlled in one country, it can easily spread around the globe, which is different because it's so contagious and it's different than a lot of the other drugs, a lot of the other conditions that we're dealing with. So you can make the case that this is a global priority and therefore countries should be pressed to do this. But I actually haven't seen much evidence that countries are being pressed to prioritize this over their own health care concerns. Remember that right now there are no treatments, there are no vaccines. Nobody's being pressed to spend a dime on anything because there's nothing, nothing to spend on.
0: Thanks, Ken. And mindful of the time, I've got one final focused question uh, for for Margaret, uh, which has come in uh, from uh, Rory Horner uh, in the University from the University of Manchester. The question: To what extent do you see export bans and protectionism in medical industries as being limited by the fact that drugs and vaccines are produced through global value chains? If I could ask you to answer in thirty seconds or less, sorry. Mm-hmm.
4: <laughs> Uh, well, I hope they are limited. Um, almost everything now is produced through global value chains. So it's, it's not that, um, that this is more of a problem or more of a limitation for, for medical goods than for many other kinds of, of products. Um, again, I, my point was, this is the response that we've seen. Uh, over the last few months undoing that well first when one country does it that induces other countries to engage in similar behavior and undoing that on a bilateral basis or even through multilateral discussions that takes time and it's unfortunate that uh, that it was done in the first place because it does really have uh s- supply consequences in a, in a short period of time and you know this during a pandemic we don't have time to to sort this out
0: which neatly leads you on to the fact that we are absolutely out of time uh, for this uh, public event. Uh, thank you to the four uh, panellists. Thank you also to the 230 plus uh, participants who joined us uh, live for this event. So thank you, everybody. Uh, we had way more questions than we had time uh, to ask. But I think that just begins to give us a hint of the interest and the
1: importance of this topic. Thank you, everybody.